Hello and welcome to the Arts House Listening Program. I'm producer Naomi Vallapi. During July 2017, we presented a public talk, Art in Action, Displacing Whiteness in the Arts, hosted by artist and researcher Tanya Kanas. The talk features dancer and choreographer Maria Randall, academic Odette Kalada, and artist Setembele Mazanze. I would like to acknowledge that we meet on the Wurundjeri lands of the Kulin Nation. I would like to pay my respect to the elders past, present, and those here with us today at this event. We are gathered here on unceded land where the violence and genocide of colonialism exists to this day through white supremacy, including cultural arts institutions, as well as extending to border imperialism. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. So today we speak about navigating and displacing whiteness and we have three amazing guest speakers, artists, and thinkers. Um, Dr. Odette Kelada, we have Setembile Mezane, um, and a guest from South Africa, live performance artist. Um, Dr. Odette is academic and researcher. Um, and we have Maria Randall, who is a contemporary dancer. And we'll hear a little bit more about their practices in a second um, when I invite them up on stage. But first, a little contextualization. Whiteness. What is it? And what do we do about it? Welcome to Encountering and Engaging Vulnerable Communities, a guide to ethical and responsible community encounters. Now, this is just a teaser to our more intensive workshop series. It goes for about eight weeks, up to eight months. It is about, you know, more than $1,000, but you can sign up with me afterwards. Thank you. Um, and it guarantees 100% community, cultural awareness training upon completion. You even get a certificate. <clears throat> now, we have gathered here today at the Arts House during a critical time of imperial reflection amid racially coded uh, spaces and colonial understandings of nationhood to ask, who are we? Who can we be? We ask Australia. Now, such confronting events have produced condemnation and considerable sort of reflective, uh, you know, thinking around regards to best practice when dealing and working with the overprivileged of our society, um, the culturally and linguistically not diverse, the privileged, or people living with whiteness. Now. It has become evident in my over 40 years of academic research that we cannot begin to comprehend the burden of navigating society with white privilege. So, as described by D'Angelo, you know, the privileged have not had to develop the affective skills necessary to critically engage in race discourse. Um, thus, the responsibility lies with us um, as the token friend, the token employee, to build their community resilience. <clears throat> 
In order to do this, however, we require cultural awareness training in how to sensitively avoid triggers um, and, you know, sensitively, culturally sensitivity, sort of, on how to engage with white people. <clears throat> now, whiteness has, you know, a set of processes and discrete practices. You can read the academic article in full. Um, sort of, you know, often, you know, what is whiteness and where is it, essentially? It, it goes often unmarked and unnamed. So the first step is identifying when whiteness is happening, as it can happen at any time. It could be happening right now. <laughs> it could be happening to the person next to you. So, as a general guide, I put together, you know, a sort of manual for you guys here today. Um, you can find whiteness sort of near activated almonds, near bottled water, you know, yoga studios, recently gentrified areas, or the following. <clears throat> now, you may also encounter whiteness like this, or, or, like this. <clears throat> now, this is just an introduction. Your safety, your physical safety is of paramount importance. So we also have another training manual that goes for about sort of eight weeks as well. It's physical sort of self-defense. Um, you can sign up with me as well after. So avoiding triggers. Um, Due to insulated environments, the over-advantaged are often unable to differentiate between being uncomfortable and being unsafe. <clears throat> so, thus in white-dominated spaces, even a minimal amount of racial stress becomes exceptional and results in retaliation, anger, confusion, Right, righteous indignation, um, argumentation, and refusal to continue to engage. <clears throat> Tears as well. <clears throat> now, to avoid triggers, use your white person voice. Um, High-pitched, um, slow, clear. Now, really work in the Australian accent. Um, you know, throw in a, a mate here or two. Um. So, social inclusion. It's me, not you. So, white people are just people, says Macintosh in his article. Um, so, we must therefore strive to be just people. Um, human you know, communicative, a coconut, a banana, or to put that framework within the Australian context, the humble avocado. <laughs> Avocados, of course, haven't been discovered by Captain Cook in the late 1700s. So, you see, the power lies with us. To become allies of the over-advantaged, it's up to us to you know, be included in the social inclusion, to ultimately be crushed beneath the fork of nationhood in a rustic, smashed avocado unison of delicious, cohesive humanity. <clears throat> it is up to us to create culturally safe spaces for the overprivileged, 
We need to have cultural sensitivity training, um, you know, to be prepared and be competent, you know, served on a wholesome whole white bread with a flat white latte. Australia needs us to step up. It needs us, it needs you, and it needs you and you to be the avocado. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and that was just as opposed to me going, oh, this is the quote of this and that. So, today, um, we've got amazing guest speakers that can problematize this further through their creative practice um, to talk about how when the field of representation and interpretation are systematically unequal, how do you present yourself in that encounter? How do you change and calibrate the power dynamics to create that into a site of resistance. Um, and also, how do we talk about it? How do we talk about whiteness without recentering whiteness? And with that inherent tension in mind, I will ask the guest speakers to come up on stage if we can give them a round of applause. Discursive 
ways of talking about things. Let's hold that with us. And I'm tired now. Um, so I'm going to ask our guest speakers to start to unpack this. And instead of me telling you about their practice, we have them here. So I'm going to pass to you first, um, Maria, if you can give us a bit of an introduction about your practice. Galibal, Gidabal, Bantalang Yago. My name is Margaret Mine Maria Randall. I'm named after my mum's mum, my dad's mum, and my mum. Does it have to be a mic? <laughs> okay. Um, so, yeah, so I'm named after three very, very strong women. Um, I'm an aunt, I'm a sister, I am a daughter, a cousin, a fiance, I am a niece. I am a friend, I'm a sister-in-law, I'm a Guri woman from the far north coast of New South Wales. I reside on the land of the Jajuwarang out in Bendigo. I'm a presence, I'm a voice, I'm an artist too. I'm an artist with a dance practice, a dance practice that is not separate from my life practice. And my life practice is to instill, reiterate, strengthen, and focus on blackness, not displace whiteness, but to empower blackness in what I do. And how I do that, and for me, saying it as a life practice, because my life and my art are not never separate, that what goes on in Aboriginal Australia obviously has an effect directly on me. So today, while I talk, my partner is out on country doing repatriation. Friday, two days before, there was a protest for Elijah Doherty, a young man who's lost his life again at White Hands. So for me to kind of sit and somewhat feel like I'm dw I dwell in whiteness, I do that and have done that most of my life. So then for me to try and displace that is giving power to whiteness. And so for me to empower it within me and what it is that I do, it has to be about instilling blackness, instilling goriness, instilling Aboriginalities, instilling a variety of blackness throughout what it is that I do. And so for the things that, some of the things that I've been lucky enough to do to be able to do that is one project that I worked on, which was Tenderum. And I'll give an example of this, um, is that I worked with five of the language groups from the Kulin Nations, which was the Jadwarang, the Woiwarang, the Wadawarang, the Tanarong and the Bunwarang. And I was able to come in as the female choreographer. There is never one in those kind of instances. It's a male-female. Um, and work with them to find ways to bring back links to culture. And so for me, being an Aboriginal person, it doesn't instantly qualify me to do that job. So in my life, I've been able to work in my own community, in other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities and other wider communities. And so that when I do come into something like Tenderum, I'm not then appropriating Aboriginal culture from far north Queensland or from the Northern Territory, that I'm actually working with the mob down here to actually find ways to, re, to find those links back to culture so that's a lot closer to them and it's not... a kind of version of someone else's. And so finding those tools 
you know, finding the, the research and finding, you know, it's not just working with young people, it's working with elders, it's working with mob that have never danced before, it's working with mob that are starting to learn a language. Um, and so for me as well, it's, it's somewhat of a privilege to be able to be in that place and so to be able to have the skills and the, the experience to be placed within that environment is pretty, I, I find, quite lucky. But then also there's a, a rollout effect as well because then that's part of what it is that's my life practice that, you know, one day, you know, whether it's 25 years from now, whether it's 50 years from now, whether it's 100 years from now, that someone from my language group, from Gitabul, from Garibal, from Banjalang, from Yegel, is sitting here and speaking fluently in language, whether you understand them or not, yeah? So that's my PhD. That's going to be my life practice. Um, and so that's, yeah, so if I think I can kind of talk quite a lot about that, but then when um, we were doing Tenderam, one of the elders, Ani Faye Carter, a Jajawang Yori Yori woman um, who turned 82 that, that year, said and reminded us all of the importance of an event such as Tenderam. So Tenderam means ceremony in Kulin language, and so it's basically the opening of the Melbourne Festival. And so she basically said that, you know, in her 82 years that now she's starting to learn her language and that when she was a kid she was never able to do that. And so that now when I find myself presenting stuff on stage, language has to be present, movement has to be present that is derived from where I come from. So I'm not necessarily that um, focused on how well my technique is because I want that to be stripped away because I want to find out how my body moved without those foreign movements being placed upon my body. Um, that I want to look at the cycle of ceremony and the way in which it happens and how I put that into space, into place, without explaining it to anybody. And that the work that I do create is now focused on black Aboriginal ideologies, methodologies and philosophies. And so I don't intend to explain what it is that I create. And if you don't get it, it's not my fault because... I have and we continue to be, you know, educating people about who we are, who our cultures are and what it is that they encompass. But there's never been a way of, you know, like people actually taking that on, on board and going, oh, shit, I can learn that myself. I can learn about France. Why can't I learn about Aboriginal Australia? So, you know what I mean? So that then... Um, so, yeah, so I think that that's where, that, where for me, it becomes empowering because in that process, I, I'm, you know, basically getting the wheels turning and so that then it's not just something that, the, that, that, that are these spots, that they're kind of this continuum of things that becomes a bigger picture and becomes a bigger movement. So it's not just me creating a project for the sake of being an artist. It's actually this, okay, I want this to accomplish this, I want this to accomplish but continue accomplishing this and so that then by those that 100 years all those things are closer or somewhere near what it is that I want it to be yeah so yeah so that's Thank me you. <laughs> so I'm gonna ask you to hold on to some of those because yeah. I'm gonna ask you more specifically about how so that looks like in one of the projects specifically that you mentioned. But I wanted to pass over and, and ask the same question to you, Sethenbile. How, how, how would you say your practice displaces whiteness? Uh, I don't know if it's possible to display white, displace whiteness. You can make it uncomfortable. You can challenge it. Um, but, yeah, uh, my name is Sethenbile Msezane. I'm from South Africa. I live in Cape Town. 
but I was brought up in Johannesburg and born in Guazulu Natal. Um, so being from these three cities, I've had um, kind of a broad um, experience of what it is to be like as a young South African. And um, a lot of my work speaks about the black female body in memorialized public spaces. And I guess it all started in 2013 when um, I had just finished university and I was now working and I felt a muteness in my own existence. I felt like even though I was a part, a functioning member of society, that my voice somehow did not matter or that I was not seen at all. And so on the 24th of September, which is Heritage Day in South Africa, where we celebrate our cultural identity, I decided that I was gonna perform myself and perform my cultural identity, which is being Zulu. And so on that day, I performed in various spaces, which involved standing on a white plinth, statuesque, and I was wearing my Zulu regalia that I was wearing on my coming of age ceremony the previous year. And something happened when I was in various spaces where I experienced people for the first time noticing that I was actually physically there and addressing me, even though I was not speaking to them. And I'll tell you more about it later, but um, where it became most poignant for me to be in a public space, dressed in my Zulu regalia on a plinth, was opposite parliament in front of um, the, the Louis Boethe statue, which um, is an Africana nationalist um, remembrance of, of Louis Boethe as a farmer, statesman, and something else, I can't remember. And so there I started to understand my practice as something that um, was recognizing that there's an absence of the black female body in the memorialized landscape in terms of statues, monuments, and even architecture at times. And so after that, I started performing on public holidays, political ones, Christmas didn't really work. <laughs> and I would embody women who um, had the same symbolism as the history I was talking about, the space that I was talking about, and things that I just wanted to, to draw out. And so my practice has been a lot about remembering, acknowledging, and highlighting women's existence within our history, as well as mythology, um, mostly in South Africa, but also branching out within the broader continent. And so, yeah. Thank you. I will pick that <laughs> up a bit more after. Thank, thank you. And if I can pass it on to Odette. Sure. Okay. Uh, so my name's Odette Kalada, and uh, it's actually a bit of a, a funny moment to be asked what I do, because I feel like you've kind of seen it. Um, I'm a, I work as a lecturer at the University of Melbourne, and the introduction that uh, Tanya did with her performance just really made me laugh, because that there was so much that is was so similar to, to what I do. Um, 
but I don't get to charge, what was it, $1,000? Yeah. Over $1,000? Over $1,000? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. But um, so I, firstly, who am I? I was born in Melbourne um, and my mother is white. She was born in London, but all the family are um, Irish from Tipperary. And my father is Egyptian uh, from Alexandria, uh, Coptic. And growing up in Melbourne, I had no idea about race. I had not, not thinking about it. Uh, we would go to Irish dancing classes and appear in Moomba in full Irish dress. Um, at the same time, we would um, be having belly dances, and this was this was just growing up. And um, I came to see through, uh, and a lot of the work I actually did was 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 around gender and feminism, um, because that's what was speaking to me as a young woman. And then uh, I met an amazing woman who is here today. And I'd like to acknowledge her, Diane Jones, who is um, an incredible artist, uh, subverting white colonial histories. And um, in, in our conversations and even just, just in walking around spaces, I realised and I learnt that this, this space changes so much depending on the bodies. Sounds so obvious, the bodies that we're in. And I would see the way that people would look at her and treat her as an Aboriginal woman and the way they would treat me. Because I know whiteness. I've, I was brought up in it. And suddenly it became so visible um, and scary and violent. And that it was in me as well. My family assimilated. So... Uh, we produced a course, which is why it cracked me up at the beginning, because we do have a course, um, <laughs> called, called Racial, Racial Literacy, Indigeneity and Whiteness. And I spend time predominantly talking to um, students who are discovering that they are white. Um, and, and probably we'll get, in, we'll get into that. But... The journey that they're on is one that I know from the inside. Um, and that's, that's, yeah, what I think makes, makes something happen in those spaces, um, which is difficult to describe, but pretty powerful. And uh, I've just moved into creative writing because I was in the Indigenous Studies program for six years. And the thing about Indigenous Studies programs, I think as Maria touched on, this idea that you can come to study the other, uh, but I found students had never um, even, the predominantly white uh, students had not even thought about studying themselves. And if you talked about whiteness studies, um, there was just this complete, you know, that's changing. But, um, yeah, so I think something like this topic, uh, displacing whiteness, I think there's a lot we could say about the title. Um, even the, the displacing, I normally use, hear that word in regards to um, displacing other peoples um, as a euphemism for genocide and violence. Um, so that word is inherently white to me when I, when I hear something like that. 
in this context. Um, but yeah. Uh, so I'm interested in, in now in the creative ways to come at this, in, in creative arts to, to counter. And that, so that was also, yeah, a, an honour to be here with these artists today. Thank you. And I guess, you know, going off sort of these introductions, the fact that um, in particular in this context, um, you know, institutional whiteness, citizenship, it's, 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 it's everywhere and there are different ways of reading whiteness depending on your social positionality. Um, and I think that's a, another sort of important um, thing to mention. So whether it's a lack of visibility from reflexivity from the self, um, or whether you inherently feel it every single day, even though you might not call it whiteness per se, and then come to that understanding after or through a process. Um, so I wanted to pass on, um, I guess, specifically when we were talking about your practice, um, you mentioned methodologies, and I think you gave us some, some really interesting examples around, um, you said, you know, there's more than one person involved. So what does that mean in terms of how power is situated differently in a, in a in a creative process, um, as well as the, the the thing you mentioned around improvisation, not seen as like oh we we just improved this on the side. You how you really value that as part of a process and being. Could you speak to that a little bit more? Hmm. Mm, again, um, I think yeah. So um, um, so the. Like in regard to something like Tenderum, it's um, obviously the elders hold, there is the hierarchy where the police, people believe it or not, the elders kind of um, hold the hierarchy and then, but then in this kind of instance where knowledge is, um, you've, there's the cultural knowledge and then there's the artistic knowledge and where those two things stand. So for, my, for, for me coming in, um, you know, the... Yeah, so it was kind of like a very, very massive kind of matrix of how to ne negotiate stuff um, that you've got, um, obviously, because I'm not from down here and working with mob that are from down here and then you've got elders um, and then you've got their community, very, you know, majority are the grandmothers, you've got their sons and daughters and their nieces and nephews and their grandchildren there as well. So then kind of placing yourself in the context of being a performance is very different of going your place within that and how you navigate that is, again, very different as well. Um, and so when you talk about um, the improvisation stuff, I think it was you were yarning more about the... Um, one of the works that I that premiered here actually as part of Dance Massive in March is called Diversity, and, and which is a work I created with Cookie Allenji woman um, Henrietta Baird and um, Burrapai Noogie woman... Um, uh, Nyoka Bunderheath and so um, the work basically is created with um, a script that's not that they're not they, that they don't have to say exactly so that it's kind of like an indication so depending on how they feel they can go 
like, you know, if I get tired, I can go sit down. So the, the idea for diversity is based around ceremony. So the f difference to different to performance where, you know, you guys sit there and I perform and then you guys clap and be passive in that kind of thing. So whereas in ceremony, it's you're in the round and when you dance, you get up and you dance. And when you're tired, you sit down. And while you're sitting down, I'm yarning over this way or going, you know, you get up and dance, you know. So there's that kind of stuff. And so when I created diversity, that's what I wanted to have in the space so I, I had that there was the yarn that was happening and that there was that relationship that was happening between the dancers but if Henrietta got to totally tired she could just go and sit on someone's lap and go hey how you doing so that that's part of her personality and so there was kind of that yeah so there was no kind of disconnection no passiveness in that regard to it and so that that basically kept them on their toes as well because then they had to be aware of what was going on in the audience and how they could potentially change it if they wanted to. So, yeah. And could you also share um, a little bit about the, the dramaturgy that we spoke about, mm -hmm. you know, in, in the process? So, who, yeah. the, the, the vision, the holistic vision of the piece. Yeah. Um, so, basically, for this work, um, it, was, it wasn't necessarily to tell a story. It was basically the work was, the dramaturgy of the work was based around cultural protocols. And so, basically, that determined how the work rolled out. And so, for me, it was, so as I'd done when I, when I began talking, I acknowledge where I'm from and then I acknowledge on whose country I'm on. And so then that was, that was then decided, like whenever the dancers walked in, they acknowledged where they were from and then when they stepped into the space, they acknowledged whose country they were on. And so that then the way in which we set that conversation up was that they, um, so once they enter, then they, the, the work is basically about how we navigate as Aboriginal women going to someone else's country and the idea of how we carry country. So carrying country, whether that's language, whether that's movement, there's definitely, um, we carry hum humour through our bodies in it from our country. There's one joke that I can tell someone that uh, the mob just won't know, or there is a general humour that everyone kind of knows about. Um, and so there's those kind of, so that then again it became, so as the performers on stage, Henrietta's the oldest, so she's the senior, so she enters the space first, and then Nayoka comes in. And then it's, there is a space of, of giving um, each of the dancers that time of acknowledging what country they come from and what they're carrying, and then how a conversation starts between the two, and so that then how that kind of builds over time. Yeah. And I think what's um, really great about sort of what you shared now about your process is that those aren't auxiliary things to a core process, they are the core process, and that in and of itself as a, as a side of resistance even. Um, when we spoke about it. Mm. Um, if you could share a little bit more about um, your practice in terms of sort of monuments and, and, and public space and how, uh, would you say it's, it's a form of rewriting history or making visible certain histories? How, how would you situate your work? Yeah, so um, I'm not sure if it's necessarily rewriting oh. history because it's very much a part of history. Mm. It's just not official history. And... Um, I am interested in uh, women who have been marginalized and vilified within um, history and mythology. And so within the first kind of segment of my performances, which was the public holiday series, I found myself, um, I guess, trying to acknowledge their existence and looking at them within a space that had already formed around me as a young person 
and saying, but wait, hold on, you know, I cannot find my own my identity within this space. And so how do we begin to rectify that or to even speak about it? And performance as a medium was the best way that I could kind of counter these, these thoughts. And um, being on, in, being in different spaces on different public holidays at the time, because we have about six political public holidays, which the first one I did was Heritage Day, then it was Human Rights Day, then uh, Freedom Day, Youth Day, um, is it back to Heritage again? Ah, five. And then there was um, Day of Reconciliation. And so with all of these kinds of um, public holidays, there's a significance behind them which roots back to the injustices that happened during apartheid. And some of the political public holidays um, changed in name so that it could suit um, the ideals of, of a, a more inclusive democracy, I suppose. So for instance, Human Rights Day now was called Sharpeville Day before, and people knew exactly what Sharpeville Day was when you said it. It was a day when policemen killed people in the township in, Char in Sharpeville, you know, and people, yeah, they, would, they died. But now it's Human Rights Day, which makes it a bit ambiguous. And then um, there's another day, Day of Reconciliation. That one changed because of, I suppose, um, diversity reasons, you know. Um, our government kind of felt that, because it used to be Shaga Day before, which celebrated King Shaga Zulu and the Zulu nation. And of course, South Africa is not made up of only Zulu people. There's 11 official languages within South Africa. And so it changed to Day of Reconciliation. Oh, sorry, no, 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 no. That was Heritage Day, <laughs> not, um, not Day of Reconciliation. But with Day of Reconciliation, it was once called um, the Day of the Vow, which is when um, the Zulu and the Afrikaans were fighting over land in KwaZulu-Natal at the Blood River. And a lot of Zulu people died. And it was called the Day of the Vow because the Afrikaans promised um, God that if they win, they would call it the Day of the Vow. And then they made a huge monument in Pretoria called the Fortreka Monument, which kind of celebrates the, the Dutch in the beginning, um, moving into South Africa and withstanding the hard pressures of, of the climate and all of these other things. And now it's called Day of Reconciliation, which is just like, wow. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of racial tensions in South Africa. We haven't resolved a lot of things. Um, there's class tensions as well, and, and now we're having problems in which we, people are calling it xenophobia, but it's actually Afrophobia because it's a, it's a type of foreigner that is um, being rejected, killed, and harmed, which is African. So we have all of these issues that I kind of just wanted to speak about through um, using my body and speaking about women's histories as well, because we've always been um, engaged within our society, politically, um, but even within the home. And so my work has kind of moved now 
in which I am still performing in public spaces, but now I'm more interested in the self within the home because there's also a form of commemoration that happens within the home, but it's not really noticeable, you know, it's in photo albums and in picture frames. And usually these devices are hidden in cupboards or whatever, you know, keists, because there was the belief before that, you know, a person's photograph is like taking someone's spirit. And if someone else had um, this photograph, you know, that harm could come onto you, you know, someone would, I don't know, bewitched of something. So these became like treasured elements within a home. So women specifically are commemorated within the home, within albums. And I think I kind of just moved in the, into domestic interiors as well to, to find who I am as a person, because I feel that anyone does this before they leave the house, you know, you either look in the mirror or you prepare yourself for the day. Sometimes the mental preparation is not necessarily, oh, I'm going to work, you know, I need to drop these emails, but it's more subconscious, you know, you're like, wow, I am going to a space now where my boss is going to not listen to what I have to say because I'm a woman. They're not gonna listen to what I have to say because they don't see me, they, they see no value in my views. But my male colleague, you know, um, or a white woman, you know, will say exact, the exact same thing and it will hold more ground. And so, yeah, I guess um, that's where I was in the beginning with trying to um, be really present and say, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, and this is the reason why I'm here. And see me, you know, not me necessarily, but see black women and now I'm in a space where I'm in a domestic environment and I'm saying, no, but I do exist. My people exist and we don't have to explain how. We're present and it should be enough, but within the society that we live in, it isn't enough. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and I think what we're, we're you know, beginning to see, and some of us know innately, um, is that you know, practice and research, it's, it's all one and the same. You're, constantly doing the double reading, the triple reading, especially as, you know, at the intersections that we find ourselves in. Um, and, you know, there's there's a particular quote by a Chicana theorist called Herada um, that she said in the late 80s. Um, and she said that um, women of colour specifically are like urban guerrilla fighters. That's how we have to fight and to navigate every moment every site. Um, so, Odette, I w you're in a very interesting site, uh, very problematic site. Uh, you work in academia and, and sort of research and then sort of thinking about how creativity sort of works in that. And if you can speak a little bit more about um, the course and, and sort of wh what is it like sort of trying to speak to these things at the heart of like, you know, the beast so to speak. <laughs> yeah, well, just, I guess, following on from where, where I left off, um, I think I've come to, to approach it really through um, using myself as much as possible, but not in an explicit way, um, but just for when thinking, okay, if, if I've, you know, realised that I've been colonised, 
mentally and on deep levels, how, how, what to do next, how to unravel, how to unwind. Um, and that is really tied in with decoding practices and understanding language and understanding histories, because all of that, even though these are words, language, history, representation, there's so much uh, what is creating, um, for me, my, my realities is what I'm standing on. If I think a, a word or a concept is what it is, but it's actually not, then I'm just going around being fooled by that for a bit and I'm not going to be able to, to decode it or, or find any grounding there. Um, and I'm thinking of a specific word, for example. Uh, so, because this is where I start then with the course. Okay, let's let's take something like a word, because um, my background is literature and I do really love words. Uh, so, race. So, the word race. And we'll do this then as a as a class. Um, it's it's a a modern invention. It's not real and there's no biological truth to it. And the fact that I, when I share this with a classroom in Australia in 2017, that some of the students there have never heard that before is saying a lot about uh, why there is, it's something people are looking into called the epistemologies of ignorance, how ignorance itself is a tool, you know, and, and keeping people ignorant. Um, is, is such a powerful thing to do. And so, even though it's been proven, for, you know, it's known, there is no biological truth to race. It was invented, it was invented quite recently. It was invented in the 1700s. And it was invented by <coughs> white scientists. Um, so, so then, that will change the conversation, both for me internally, but also then for the class. Because now we're using the word race but we're all using it a bit, it's shifted. Because it's not just some word where we think, if I use that word, I know what I'm saying, and you know what you're saying. No, it's actually rooted now. We've got, we've got the roots. And then we could look at a word like white and whiteness, and that has its own history. Um, you know, that only emerges in, into, into print, it gets written down in the... I think it's around the mid-1600s and it's through, you know, property law and it's about giving, um, creating this idea of, of uh, you know, the, the wages of whiteness, it's called, so giving capital through being white in order to sort of uh, break up alliances between um, working class uh, indentured servants and... Uh, slaves in America. So all of these histories are hitting us today when we use these words. And, you know, and I, and, you know if you throw out something like this, uh, the word Caucasian, this is my final one, the word Caucasian is actually from Johann Blumenbach, white scientist, picks up a skull, and uh, on the Caucasus Mountains, meant to be where the origin of white people come from, um, and says, this is the most beautiful skull. You know, this is where the word Caucasian comes from. The most, it turns out to be a female skull, a young female, who uh, is believed to have died from a venereal disease and most likely to have been part of the, the slave trade of, of women in that period. It is a deeply layered 
uh, histories we stand on, all of this will be coded over. All of this will be mystified. And instead, in this country, we'll just talk about race. Everyone, there'll be race and the thing, race here, you know, and the whiteness, white here. Nobody really knows anymore what we're talking about. So that's the start, just the, the very first start to me then of a practice of attempting to unwind or decode, if it's possible, um, the, some of the impacts of being colonised internally. Oh, yeah. Conversation about decoding the matrix is a good example. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think, you know, research as a tool to begin to unpack mm. how research then became an oppressive tool in mm -hmm. and of itself is really interesting and probably quite modeling to students when you've heard of But also in saying that, how it is innate, it's everywhere, it's every day. Every moment, as I mentioned, and that's kind of what I want to pick for the, you know to talk about for the next bit is that those every moments, and you know we talk about doing a performance in space, we talk about you know this talk here, but it's actually those moments that happen beforehand that are sites of struggle in and of themselves. Um, so just to give you a quick example in my practice, when I um, I was writing sort of a book chapter that's. Um, you know, and, and I specifically in my practice and in my methodology always like write we and us when I talk about, you know, theatre sites of resistance or community um, that I identify with. And then one of the, you know, the feedbacks that the editor gave me, the number one feedback um, was, you're assuming that the readers of this are of the refugee and asylum seeker. Okay. And I was like, well, you're assuming they're not. So um, even to say we and even to say us yeah. is a fight. Like these seemingly simple things. So, you know, I, I remember we had a conversation about your first chapter in your sort of master's thesis and even having to capitalize the H. Like, can you speak a little bit more to those like daily annoyances and struggles? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, I can. <laughs> okay. Okay, how much time we got? No joke, shut up. Um, uh, yeah, so during, when I'd done my, um, my master's thesis, uh, I was um, basically wanting to hold history accountable, so I basically capitalised it and turned him into a person. So when I spoke about it, I spoke as him being a man. And so um, that, and that just became quite problematic um, with, with uh, the, my assessors and kind of going, I don't get what you mean. And, and because I had also quite, um, a lot of my first chapter quoted quite frequently. And, um, and so it was like, obviously it was, I wanting history speaking, so let him talk. So I'm not going to try and, you know, quote, in, um, what is it, paraphrase anything to make it sound any better. So, um, and so it just became a bit of a struggle and I said, well, what if I write, I'm going to hold my tongue and I'll let history speak. Does that work? And they were like, oh, okay, yep. <laughs> it does. It does. And so it was just such a small thing, but for me, yeah, it was a, um, at least if it's a thing or it's a person that's right here, right now, I can actually talk to it as if I'm having a conversation. Whereas if it's way back then, I can't. And so that's just by capitalising, H turned, in, turned it to a person. And so that just became really problematic, which I don't think it should have. Yeah. 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 Y
Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> Academia. <laughs> um, so throughout my masters, you know, I'd have phrases like "my people," "my people," <laughs> and my supervisors were just kind of like, "You have to be specific. You can't just say your people." You know, I'm like. Obviously, I'm talking about black people, you know, and they're like, no, but it's not so, not everyone knows that. And, um, but also the, my people was a spiritual, my people as well. And I found that I had to explain a lot of things that I didn't want to necessarily explain. And when it came to speaking about the spirituality in my work, I really froze up and really didn't know how to engage with that at all because well the education system in South Africa is still quite Eurocentric and spirituality you know African spirituality or whatever you want to call it is still kind of a gray area um, South Africa is a, a Christian society mostly um, and the books that I wanted to read up on the ideas I was having and what I was experiencing and feeling weren't readily accessible and available. So I found myself, it was a good challenge in the end because then I had to become more reflective, speak to my elders about it. And I found other books that kind of somewhat linked to what I was speaking about, but I'm not quite sure if that they, they found the holisticness of what I was feeling when I, I would be performing or I would be creating a work. Um, and animism has been now a, a term that, or new animism rather, has been a term that I've kind of identify with in my practice. Um, but yeah, and also in the beginning of my, my masters, you know, I was like, um, I'm interested in black women's histories, you know, and those of which are also in mythology that are not so much based on what I've read before, which is quite negative and um, very marginal, you know. So if speaking, for instance, about uh, the Queen of Sheba, you know, in the Bible, for instance, you know, they still find a way to vilify her. I mean, she was a queen who came with hard questions for King Solomon. And even in the Bible, you know, they say that she had like this hairy foot that was cloven, which of course, you know, resonates with the devil. So um, I was told to go read more on some of these women I was interested in. And I just ignored my supervisors. <laughs> <laughs> And something amazing happened because during that time, I was also trying to figure out what my, my master's was about. It was called Gwasuga Sugela, Reimagined Bodies of a South African 90s-born black woman. And during that time, um, there were talks about the road statue being removed. And... I was excited, of course, because my previous series paid attention to public statuary and how it's so dominant within white colonial and Africana national identity. And 
But I wasn't focusing so much on that anymore. I was quite reflective and within myself. And I started having dreams about a bird um, that I hadn't told anyone about during that time. And the next meeting came and they were like, right, so what did you learn? What did you read? You know, and I was just kind of like, um, so I hear the road statues coming down, you know, and we were just candidly talking about the statue and not really as a part of my practice or this meeting, but more as a way to divert them from what they wanted me to do. And, <laughs> and then they were like, oh yeah, and it's coming down today. I was just like, wait, what? We have a meeting today. I mean, there's a mass meeting about the statue. They're like, yeah, can't, there was a meeting with council and they decided that it's coming down today. So then I had to postpone my meeting because I had already decided in that moment that this woman that I was conjuring inside my head and who had come to me um, was going to be there when he was going to be removed. And I think that had I been in a position where I listened to my supervisors and not that I'm being disrespectful of them or anything, you know, they were amazing throughout the whole time, but ha had I listened to the direction that they gave me, my work probably wouldn't have been where it is now, and I probably wouldn't have been ready for that moment when the statue was being removed. Um, because in making some of the, the elements that would be a part of the performance, you know, I was almost done, but not quite. Um, and it took me a long time to get to that point. And so, yeah, academia can be great, but it can be a problem as well. Yeah, there's a really, there's a really good article um, called Fight the Tower. Um, and it specifically, you know, problematizes around academia and sort of how to find sites of resistance and navigating. Because what we're seeing mm. here is that these happen. Mm. And these are the ethical and political decisions you make every day about practice, about what words you use, about mm. what's capitalized. Like, they're everywhere. Um, did you want to speak a little bit more to maybe theory and how, how theory situates itself in this context? Oh, we had an interesting discussion about that, didn't we? <laughs> Yeah, I guess I was, um, when we, we met to have a chat about this panel, and I was just in a bit of a, you know, uh, a bit of a, a moment of, of wondering, I guess you could say, how much this idea of theory um, and academia, oftentimes we're using, you know, one of the things about whiteness is that we're using these, these words in very general terms but if it was a racialized um, theory theorist, we would use that, and that would be signaled, and that would be um, labeled. But academia can just exist as academia. But what we are talking about is is whiteness um, and theory. What was I guess the conversation we were having? I'm really interested to hear your response and learn more and, and keep having a dialogue because I was starting to feel like that it was being used in a very exclusive way um, to, and, and on many levels. So sometimes there is a sense that it, it, institutions don't even need to be in any way explicitly uh, racist because the very makeup, because uh, from their the very roots of how they came in was, is the core model will exclude by, by what it is and how it runs. It is 
in itself, but it can appear totally invisible. And that can create such a sense, and, and I think what gets me um, is how much insecurity and the impact on the confidence of very cool people who come in to work in this space because it can feel like they don't belong. And I have conversations with very, very bright, amazing people where it's like, this is not my space. This space doesn't belong. I don't look like this space. I don't see myself in this space. So, and I'm wondering, I've been wondering about theory being used as one of the kind of neutralised mechanisms to do it um, because of who is this canon of, of, of theorists who gets seen as worthy, who's even taught. A lot of the times we don't, you know, there's the, you know, why is my curriculum so white movement? Yeah. You know, but, but your response also, if I could throw it back over, was really interesting and I thought, okay, well, maybe I've just been, you know, I need a holiday. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, where well, you had, had hope in it, so. Can I, can I just interject? Yeah. yeah. Um, with um, these institutions not really yeah. reflecting um, the students sometimes who are within that institution. Um, so in the performance that I just did, except of excerpts from the past, um, there's a part where there's a sound clip and there's a student at Rhodes University who says, I want the people to know what, be, what happens behind those walls, right? Mm -hmm. And then the policeman, well, some other things happen. He's like, Amandla, Amandla, you know. And then there's another student who's like, are you going to shoot us now? So, and then they start shooting. So for me, that moment, um, wow, was so powerful and so poignant because having been within an academic institution for my second degree now, you know, I felt like you go in there a whole person and then the institution unpicks at your identity. And it's like having these bullets coming at you, you know, and that's exactly what happens behind those walls, you know. They strip at your identity and they strip at your, your, your selfhood that when you come out, you, you have some students. So during the movement, the fees must fall and the roads must fall movement, a lot of students um, realized that they were having shared experiences of covert, mostly covert, but also overt racism within the institution. And some students left um, the institution not really knowing who they are or assimilating because it's just easier. And some students had mental illness, some sort of mental illness by the time they left the institution, which was quite interesting as well. So, yeah. yeah. And I'm just conscious about time, but I'll respond this very briefly, unless we can then unpick it during the Q&A. But um, this is something I spoke about um, during the Women of the World conference, which is theory has always been part of us. It became institutionalized. It became externalized from the body. And I, my argument was that um, it wasn't something that we were then supposed to do, but it was supposed to be done to us. Mm. So it became part of a dichotomy. Um, and part of pathologizing and violent dichotomy. Um, and uh, this, this realization is just, you know, growing up mm. quite politicized. And, you know, one example I give is that you were walking our dog, Tito. Um, 
a little chihuahua dog, and I was like, oh, he, he walks a bit crooked because, he, you know, maybe I'm pulling this, and I, you know, and then my dad was like, what you just did there is theorize. And I was mm. like, but that's what academics do. Like, so it's always been everywhere. So the mm. idea that it's not for us is actually serving whiteness. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> do we have any questions? Uh, before, before I do, um, I just wanted to make a point about reflecting about your social positionality outside of this space. And to think about that before talking. Um, and also we're looking for questions. Hi, thank you all so much. That was really amazing. Um, and I don't know, it just got me thinking about why we keep on going back to these institutions even though they are such harmful spaces. Um, I recently heard Jacob Bohm, Jacob Bohm, the director for Euron Boy, say that he felt like, um, specifically when First Nations people, and I think it's applicable to non-white people in general, um, that making work that goes against the institution is a trap. Um, and sometimes I really feel like that. Um, and I was just wondering, um, yeah, if you could give a response to that. Thank you, thanks. Making- I'm more interested yeah. in how it's a trap. Yeah. Yeah. You can, you can keep that if you want, I can yell. <laughs> <laughs> Let me know if you can't um, hear or don't. Yeah, I'm more interested in how it's a trap. Um, in my, abstract I did mention that you know I'm making this work because I think it sits outside of the canon and I don't understand why that is um, and I'm not doing it to kind of reveal subjugated knowledge which is what a lot of white academics do but to place these histories within mainstream history um, because it is important I think by someone alluding to it being a trap, that's an essence trying to, to silence these histories, these views that are, are so present and yet are muted within our society. So, yeah. I, yeah, I'll have to tell him I disagree with him. Um, yeah, I think it more just for me, like it's, um, and it's actually more from him as well because he's a close friend of mine and a lot of other mob that have come before, that their defiance of the system has kind of made me come in even more defiant of actually going, yeah, I'm going to speak up louder and yeah, I'm going to jump up and down and you, yeah, you are going to see me and I don't give a fuck, you know. So, um, and it's just, yeah, like if, um, because I've, it's either that or it is shrinking into the corner and that's not an option. Mm. Would you like to respond or? More. Yeah, more about that. But it just makes me think about those kind of discussions about um, can reacting become its own form of containment? Um, and if that makes sense, uh, if, if it keeps things in a, in a sort of binary, but at the same time, alternatively, that, that kind of quote could be really deflating as well and could read like, you know against the kind of resistance that is needed. So I'm not quite sure which, which way to come at, yeah, yeah, I'd need more context. But, well, mm. um, just gonna problematize it a little bit and say um, at times to be like, oh, I don't wanna be part of this or that is a privilege in and of itself. Some people don't get that choice. So 
Um, do we have any other comments or questions? One at the back. Hi. Um, kia ora. I'm a Māori academic who teaches and I'm a PhD student. So hearing you mob talk about... Um, I, I know how difficult it is within academia. Um, I turn up to lectures and I've had... People think I'm the cleaner, right? Because I can't have a tamoko, which talks about my tribe and my people and my river and my mountain with being... And have hair like this and be a teacher as well, apparently. But um, what I'm interested in... Um, so the academia... Uh, I can agree with a lot of what you're talking about it as a space that has its own institutions and its own language. However, what I'm really interested in is how um, you've found ways of um, maintaining your own identity and presenting your own culture in other art spaces outside of that particular institution, only because I know that institution. <laughs> and I'm curious about how it's affected other in other art spaces. So if you could answer that, that'd be great. Thank you. Sorry, can you just repeat? So do I understand you correctly when you say, how do we represent ourselves outside of art institutions and academic institutions? I guess I mean in a lot of the discussion today in talking about displacing whiteness, I guess, um, the academic institution of a university setting has come up a lot and I guess I'm interested in hearing how you've approached your practice um, and presented and represented your culture outside of the academic context. So how, how has... Um, being black or a woman of colour affected you outside of other, within other arts institutions other than academia? I guess that's what I'm asking. Oh, okay. Uh, well, my work exists within a public and a private setting in which the most, most of my performances have been in public spaces and that's outside of the institution, I suppose. Um, but then the work goes into galleries as well, which is another kind of institution where there's a different kind of audience, um, not your everyday passerby. Um, and I suppose my work has always been unapologetic. Um, I remember being in a competition once where I knew I was not gonna win, you know. I, I knew it, you know, but they always pre present you with this, um, kind of like glossed over, like, no, but it could be you, you know, like, you've got, you've got a possibility, your work is really strong, but truth be told, like, it, it was a big institution, you know, and sometimes within these institutions, you know, the white supremacy is still within the cracks and within the, 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 the clientele that that institution kind of exists for, you know, and so to accept a person like me, <laughs> who, um, who's, can you just show them the image, please, for those who don't know it, you know, who stands bold, boldly in public spaces, um, you know, as a black woman in, in, in institutions that were previously catered for white people and saying that I am here, I am present, that my people have a story to tell and it is not the one of you conquering me. You know, I mean, 
which white institution is gonna give a prize to that, you know? I'm just like, I knew, but I was just like, I'll just go for the free food and stuff, you know? So, yeah. <laughs> I'm just gonna, would you like to respond to that? Because we also had a discussion about um, presenting work in different spaces and, and different sort of festival environments and what the difference is around that. Yeah. So. Uh, um, the, so one thing, so for me, one of the things that I've um, started to do a lot more is actually be conscious of who I'm making the work for, and that is for Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander peoples. And so um, the in, in an instance here is that the work diversity that I created, it was actually, it premiered here as part of Dance Massive and then was actually part of Yerimboy, which was, you know, six weeks later. So... The audience were very, 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 very different, and um, and so it was nerve wracking in the of you know premiering a work in the context of an international context and majority of you know white people being in the audience, but then taking it to Yerimboy basically um, was my biggest indicator of that's where I'm going and that's what I'm doing and I'm on the right track. Um, and throughout the process um, and with a lot of the stuff that I do intend to do in the future is that, um, you know, I've done up the little blurbs about my work and then had it sent back going, what, have you thought about this? And I was going, no, 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 those are my words. You use that. There's no editing. This is what I, and you know, like, and even to that point of going, what's the music that people are coming in? I was playing TLC, all that kind of stuff, you know, because I was like building that, that kind of thing. So it's not just, I'm being conscious of what it is that I'm saying that's out there that's my language. It's not someone else's that's editing and putting it grammatically together. Um, what image it is. And majority of what I'm kind of starting to do now is, is that thing of, you know, a lot of my identity is, and the way I look has been kind of, defined or judged back to me from the outside. And so I'm doing, I'm changing my image from me and I'm not giving anyone else the power to do that. And so that is like, and I'm looking at that throughout all the things that I do, whether that's teaching with kids or whatever. And so that the language with which I use and all that kind of stuff. So it's all part of that. So it's not, yeah. So I'm not just conforming again to this template that I should be, be part of, yeah. I'm just gonna go to the initial question. Oh, yeah, I had a question around the allegory of the matrix because a white middle-class friend of mine said that being white middle-class in so-called Australia is like being plugged into the matrix and I agree with that but I also feel like there's this thing where so many progressive white people think they're Neo woken up from the matrix and are not necessarily so and, um, you know, if I'm... And if I'm have woken up and I'm on the resistive side, it's more important for me to try to take up as much space fighting for that than like actually step back and, you know, let the powers, the less powered to whatever. And so what would be, <laughs> what, it was almost a statement, sorry, almost a white man then. Um, but what would be your sequel to this situation of this? Matrix. What would be your sequel? Sorry, for example, there was three people of colour waiting outside for a ticket and no white people stopped to give them them because it was more important to be here than to displace themselves for that. Odette, would you like to... Um, <laughs> <laughs> we, I, I, I pass it on to Odette because we had a similar discussion 
about this over coffee. Did you want to unpack that a little bit? Oh, uh, you just got, just got me thinking about sequences. Sequences <laughs> to the Matrix. Um, and then I... So, so we do uh, use this in class and then um, talk about the Neo character. Uh, Yeah, 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 yeah. And I'm not. I didn't come up with that. I'm. Uh, I actually got got the example from. There's a there's a thesis, PhD thesis, uh, really good, um, by Michelle Johnson online on racial literacy that I read when I was building it. And she said she used it. And it's always good to use, you know, popular culture in class or whatever. But this one, this one, I guess it's about what purpose you're using it for, um, because I use it. I use it because I got so, I got really interested in how to, when I first started running, running this, a lot of time got spent up with individual students wondering if they were bad or good people, <laughs> run, wondering if they, if this class was going to tell them that they were going to be sprung as racists. And it was very centred around, around themselves and their own experience and, and, and bodies. So I started to use that as a way to go, we are talking about how your bodies, individual bodies, yes, they are there and they're very, um, but they're part of this. They're part of this and we're all born into this. So let's have this conversation because it's way more interesting. And we can go to some, you know, very, uh, the places we need to go. And it's not, it's going to get out of that narcissistic um, loop which is whiteness in action in a classroom, which centralises whiteness when you're trying to actually make it visible and deconstruct it. So, um, and then sometimes we talk about the, by the end of the course, we talk about the, um, the, the, the actual sequel to the, you know, in the Matrix sequence, where uh, the, the thing is, even though supposedly Neo's one, um, it comes back. Yeah, it comes back uh, and is sort of has a bit of neo in them, and so they're able to fight like a, they're. Able, I'm sorry, I'm trying to remember the exactly the the sci-fi. Diane, you can <laughs> help me out here. We watch it together. We're having but a screening right after this. Having a screening. <laughs> and the fact is, if if you've displaced something, it will morph. It will internalize. Just just watch how you how it just got displaced, and come back around. Yeah. And and reconfigure and reconfigure and reconfigure and reconfigure. And that's what it would do. So I guess I don't have a sequel, but I'm thinking of the sequel. And then the conversations that I'm interested in having is, it's a very adaptive, power, it's very adaptive. That's what we're actually talking about. It's not still. So how to be, you know, adaptive and, and decode at that level, at that speed. Am I making sense? I didn't expect to be doing this here, but at the end of the first one, Neo goes into him and explodes him. Explodes yeah. him. And he reconfigures. Yeah. Bigger and better than ever before. Yes. And I wanted to pass it on to some the panelists if they had a comment or we can I Maybe the dancer knows. <laughs> well I, there's there's something called sort of speech declaration. So that's the conflation of saying 
I'm a white guy with a beard or that's a white institute, as in itself, just by saying it, is, is undoing it. And it's almost like a negation of any other sort of responsibility. And without any understanding of what that actually means in daily moments and power structures and, and, and relations. Um, so Sarah Armand called it calls it speech declaration acts, which actually then become morphed as another way of saying, I'm not racist, but, right? It's just, it keeps changing, right? I, I'm conscious about time. I've noticed there's two more questions and that, oh, oh, pressure, pressure. I'm gonna go here because I saw this one first. Thank you. Hi, thank you guys all so much. This has been really, really fruitful and incredible to be a part of. Um, I'm speaking from a background as a performance maker and an academic, and I'm in my research, I'm deeply invested in Afrofuturism and the possibilities of utopias. And so I was wondering if through your practice, especially practicing in such heavily white places such as Australia, and I'm from Atlanta, Georgia, which is a super black place, and I still find it hard. Um, in your practice, if you find it possible to find utopia, and how does that utopia come up in your practice, and what does it look like? Thank you. I think it's in, um, in my practice anyway, it's in the acknowledgement of self. Um, I think that's why I am going more into the private domain, um, because there's a lot of uh, dom uh, dominant, um, discourses and symbolism within public spaces that without anyone saying something to you, you know, things like monuments and statues and even the architecture have echoed a social class and racial divide. And not that I am hiding, but I am realizing that I need to go back into myself and reflect. And um, that space for me is very utopic. It can, they can be attention, but the, the space that I'm in right now, I kind of feel like I am understanding more of myself and I'm trying to understand more of my other selves. So my ancestry, you know, the spiritual realm. And that process for me has been a very um, enriching experience because this, this is the kind of um, knowledge that is not readily accessible and available um, within institutions such as UCT which is the institution I studied, you know. And so, yeah. In the interest of voices from the audience, I'm gonna pass it on. Thank you. Um, I, hope this, uh, I hope this is like a, a short thing, but um, I just wanna know what, in terms of like adaptation, um, how to you how, how do we counteract that adaptation by having another, our own adaptation and whether, whether um, oh my God, I've forgotten the word, <laughs> whether um, solidarity amongst each other is an adaptation to that. What's the word? There's a word for this. Like, no, not an adaptation, but like whether solidarity with other people of colour is an adaptation to that. Yeah, not, well, let's go for that one, yeah. Okay. Interse intersectionality, let's go mm -hmm. for that. Oh, okay. Any, any initial it? responses? Maria? What about <laughs> it? <laughs> whether that's an adaptation to oh. whether that could be... Do you mean incorporated into whiteness? No, well, let, why don't we discuss that? Why don't we 
What are you? What are your thoughts on intersectionality? If I can. In 30 seconds. (laughs) No, I think it's a very important um, concept that is opening up more of our understanding of each other because as people, I think it's natural that we can become self-absorbed without knowing how we affect other people um, and, and, and how these spaces can, that sometimes were not designed and made for us, can influence us in ways that we can hurt other people. And so when you think about intersectionality, you have to realize that, that there is a kind of shift that needs to happen in your mind where it's not a censorship as such, although some people do need to, you know. <laughs> um, but it's a realization that, you know, when you look at a person, they aren't just, you aren't just a woman. You might not even identify as a woman, you know. Um, that you might have different kinds of abilities that are not the same to mine, you know, um, whether it be physical or mental or even spiritual, um, that your race is a part of your identity and I have to be cognizant of, of that as well. And so intersectionality makes us, I think, better people. But this concept for a lot of... Um, Everyday people, you know, common, the common layman is not something that's quite accessible. And so how do we talk about that within our own communities or with the languages that we have that are not necessarily verbal um, but can be in how we exist? So, yeah. Um, it's, a, it's, it's a term that it's, it's really kind of good that you brought it up in relation to the adaptive thing because it's being co-opted as is every good term will eventually um but I was watching a clip of um Kimberly Crenshaw talking about how when she first you know how this term came up and it was about trying to uh draw attention to the bodies that fall in the cracks um the bodies that don't fit in this box uh, and the bodies that aren't fitting in this in this category, and so can't, for example, get um, support, uh, can't get um, funding. Um, so it was a very practical application that she was talking. And it was around um, African American women that she was studying um, how they could just not um, be supported because they're not ticking boxes because some are for uh, this category, some are for that, and they are, remain invisible. So this, this idea of intersectionality is a really interesting one to bring up because I'm still also resonating with um, the point brought up before as about a forum on displacing whiteness. If there are people who are unable to get into the forum, what does that mean for bodies that fall in cracks, even in the very spaces that we, we're sitting in? And that's the thing about these conversations and that's even the thing, I think, about being in institutions. Everything we talk about, and now I'm really seeing your point about theory, is lived all the time in every single moment we're doing it. So it's, um, intersectionality has so much hope to me because it's got that complexity that we're going to need to get really much more complex. Everything's always simplified. But how? And can we keep it from being um, a, another nice term to be used along with diversity. Absolutely. Um, and even the first person to say my thesis was apparently decolonial was my supervisor. 
I had never described it. So terms like the Vogue in terms, multiculturalism had its day, you know, diversity, decolonial, what does that mean with the changing contexts? And I'm going to pass on to our final, final question because we are over time. Thank you. Uh, if you could just bear with me for a little bit as my English isn't that good. I'm a fourth language English speaker. Um, I was going to ask Stembalile, uh, given the fact that South Africa is highly polarized, you have also uh, different communities, various races living concentrated in different communities, in different sections of the country. Would uh, the idea of a white people like Afrikaners now moving into Orania, you know, like they're highly concentrated in this new town, they've sort of like made exclusive for them alone, help towards that displacement, you know, in the, you know, like universities and all across, across uh, uh, various institutions in the country, will that help? And what is preventing the South African government, the black government, current government, uh, to bring about that displacement of whiteness within its education system. And then uh, furthermore, like if I have to have an ex to give an example, like previously, a fortnight ago, there was this uh, school, Colored Community, which was against a black principle in the, you know, so I'm just wondering perhaps if each and every single racial group in South Africa is allowed, like Orania, now we have this, newly formed Afrikaner um, settlement, you know, within South Africa that's exclusively for, for Afrikaners. You know, if so, like, everyone's given that uh, leeway, that uh, authorization to go out there and say, establish himself in a certain section of South Africa and run himself, you know, and would that be a way forward to help the current government of South Africa bring about that displacement, that complete, you know, displacement within the education system, art and everything. Thank you. I don't think um, putting people in concentration camps, you know, and settlements would necessarily help, you know. It would be another kind of um, apartheid in itself, which is already playing out in people's minds, even though we are in a democracy. Like how you spoke about the community of um, the Afrikaans colored community not wanting a black principle, things like that. Um, but what could help is, I suppose, within these institutions, academic institutions, you know, having more representation in African scholarship, which is currently not happening. And that is one of the problems because people cannot identify. I mean, why are we still learning about the French and the English and in Africa, you know, like, and being in an art school, you know, they would say African art, which is, what the fuck is African art, you know? We're living in the continent, we're making art, are we making African art, you know? What does that look like? Um, and also it's absurd having, um, a segment of the university which is, what, what's it called, African studies, you know? And it's, <laughs> I think a lot of how UCT, for instance, is still structured is with that, that dominant Eurocentric scholarship. And so how the government could help is by 
having stricter measures, you know. We still have a dominant um, white professorship and senior position in, in lecturers in the institution, which is very unequal when you look at the demographics, demographics of the country, um, but also within the institution as well, there are not as many black students as they should be within the institution, but that's mostly because of economic reasons. So a lot of South Africa's wealth is still in the hands of white monopoly. And so it's a whole structural pyramid actually that needs to move and has to be changed within the society at large. So it's not just the institutions. The institutions are part of the problem, but there are other sectors within our society which need to be looked at in South Africa. And land is an issue. Black people don't own their land, you know. And that also contributes to the frustration to um, us feeling as if, even though we have a democracy, we are not equal. And equality is not that, okay, fine, white person, black person, and there were other racial categories that came with apartheid, such as um, colored, um, white person, black person, colored person, Indian person, you can all sit next to each other now. Now everyone's happy, right? No, it doesn't mean that. We have to rectify um, some of these, these inconsistencies. So although I can sit next to my white peer now in a classroom, right, I'm not guaranteed a job afterwards. You know, my white peer probably has his dad, his mom, who can call up whatever company, you know, or whatever gallery and say, listen, you know, you know my daughter, right? You know, and they can have lunch about it and all of those kinds of things because white monopoly is still in the hands of white people. And, and so I don't know what the solution is, but in terms of the, um, the government intervening in academic institutions, there needs to be more black female um, and male, of course. <laughs> um, professors and lecturers in senior positions, which is not happening at the moment. So what happens is that you will have these lecturers who are in junior positions, and because of how the university is structured, you know, they get so frustrated by the system, you know, and there isn't um, a handing of proper procedures for handing over, that you find yourself looking for things and you can't actually do your job. So you get frustrated and eventually people leave. Yeah. So, yeah. On that note, and with um, being conscious about time, I guess I, I wanted to offer some concluding sort of thoughts around what each of the panellists have said and even some of the questions coming up around, you know, if we're talking about a context of society, if we're talking about fields of representation and interpretation being systematically unequal, then when we talk about exchange or sites of resistance, it's not about an exchange with the idea of... Um, Equal. I can sit next to the person here. I can sit next to the person there. Because with the idea that the exchange is equal, it's actually not going to be because the field itself is not. The Institute of, you know, academia is not. You know, they exist in very politicised spaces. So um, how, how do these power dynamics change through, through a practice, through an intervention, through a glitch, through decoding? So, um, and... Resistance, I guess, and what we've seen by each of the speakers 
you know, whether speaking from within whiteness, around whiteness, with whiteness, is that resistance um, doesn't look like the shiny way of resistance all the time. These are everyday moments, are a, a protest. So thank you very much. Um, I think, I, I, I'm not sure if I'm just volunteering them that they're gonna be around in the foyer. Um, but if you can catch them, um, and maybe we can have some discussions, I'll be sticking around a little bit afterwards. So thank you very much for staying back 15 minutes, apologies. Um, thank you. Thank you.